I'd ask that you would take God's Word in your hands and turn to the uh, Gospel of Mark again. We're going to be finding our uh, text this morning in Mark chapter 7. And uh, we'll be finishing up Mark chapter 7 and moving into the first part of Mark uh, chapter 8. And uh, we have been uh, looking under the heading of man at work, looking how the Son of Man paved uh, the way uh, to God. And uh, we uh, are once again coming upon the ministry of Jesus and seeing what Jesus is doing in the life of not only the people in his present day, uh, but also in our lives today as well. So I'd ask that you would stand as we uh, give attention to God's word and the reading of his word as we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 8, verses 21. And it says the following, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, and that is to be opened. And this, his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when a great crowd had once again gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat, and with his disciples went to the district of Dalmanthutha. Now the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? The disciples said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you, and we are a people just as your disciples were, people who are slow to understand. Lord, I pray that today we would understand what you have for us. We would understand what you're calling us to, that we would remember your faithfulness, we'd remember your goodness, we'd remember when things looked so bleak and so difficult that you were there. And you took the little that we had and you've made it so much more. Lord, I pray that we would exhibit that kind of faith. A faith that puts its trust in you and you alone to meet our every need. Lord, I pray that we would be willing, just as you did, to take that faith and to reach out to those who are in need. To have compassion and to serve others just as you have served us. Lord, open our hearts today. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears that we may hear. Lord, open our lives so that out of that overflow of what you've placed in our hearts, we may share it with others. Speak through me now, Lord, so that I may be clear to articulate your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a few phrases in my life that I remember learning as a kid that still are applied in my life. But one comes to mind that I used to hear from my father all the time, and it was, keep it simple, silly, or some variation of that phrase. And I remember thinking about what that meant as a kid and not fully understanding it until I got a little older. Don't make things more difficult on yourself than you need to. And the older I get, the more I begin to understand that this is a mantra that I want a part of my life. I want simplicity, not more complexity. I want things to uh, become less, not more. You know, this acronym that continues to float around in our mind of keeping something simple is something that has impacted my life as a father, as a husband, as a businessman and as a pastor. And as I said, the older I get, the more I desire to see this old adage come true in my life. Simplicity is something I want. Because we live in a world of great complexity. All of the messages and all of the conversations and all of the meetings and and opportunities and events that we have in our life, it seems at times that our world finds itself out of control. The average adult finds himself juggling numerous balls in the air on any given day with the tyranny of the urgent keeping us from taking stock of the life we're living and enjoying the smaller things, I might add, the more important things of life because they're pushed by the wayside. Albert Einstein once said, out of complexity, find simplicity. That's some pretty incredible words from a man who dealt with the complexity of physics all throughout his life. But as I continue to see our world become more and more complex, there's a movement back to the simple things of life. We see it in the world of advertising. It seems that simple is in. People long for it. They seek for it. They pay for it and even dream of it because these days it seems that simple works. Let me prove it with three examples. 
Apple Computers, the most uh, profitable company, it seems, in all of the world, has a simple logo of a black and white apple to say who it is. Billions and billions of dollars. And yet they say, we want to be identified by a simple apple. Nothing more, nothing less. For many of us, we go onto the computer to go onto an internet search engine, and we go to that of Google. And when you go to Google, all you see is the word Google in some nice color. Just letters of different colors and a white background. Simple, no frills, and yet one of the most visited web pages in all of the world. And then how about Nike? Nike, with all of the great sayings of coaches and athletes throughout history, all of the great artwork of, of Michael Jordan slam dunking a basketball to a tennis player hitting the ball with a crushing blow, a football player going for the extra yard, they have all kinds of material. And their phrase simply in all marketing is, just do it. Simplicity is in. Now let's move from the secular to the scripture this morning. This is true in the teachings of Christ. In fact, the greatest earthly adversary that Christ had were the religious leaders who wanted to make our life more difficult, more complex, filled with more rules, and Jesus came, he says, to set us free from all of that. Jesus wants our life and our walk with him to be a simple one, to be one that is not so complex. Before you think that this idea of simplicity is an approach by your pastor to give the notion that Christianity is without nuance and depth, you've got another thing coming. But does it have to be complex? Hans Hoffman, a, a painter of a generation ago, put it this way. The ability to simplify, the ability to simplify means to eliminate the unnecessary so that the necessary may speak. I don't think Hans Hoffman was a believer, but those words ring true in the life of Tim Bidall. I make the Christian life so complex. I make it so difficult at times when all Jesus is asking for me to do is come and follow him. And we make it so filled with all of these do's and don'ts. And, and some of them, of course, are, are incredibly biblical and they're good for us to follow. In fact, we are called to follow them. We can make this Christian thing difficult for ourselves. Now, some may say, Tim, you are taking a deep and profound mystery, our walk with Jesus Christ, and you're minimizing it. And let me remind you, it is in the simple times with my Lord that I have found the greatest joy, the greatest contentment, and the greatest depth. Just simply walking with my Lord is something that has revolutionized my life. So let's look at this. Because our text gives us three things, three simple things that we need to do in our Christian walk. It's not all of it. It doesn't involve every part of the gospel. It doesn't involve every part of the walk of sanctification or the walk of the Christian. But it does give us a framework, a simple framework, as to how we can walk with our Lord in a way that will 
glorify and honor him. The first thing that I want you to notice this morning is that if we want to keep things simple, we need to get alone with Christ. We need to get alone with Christ. In last week's text, we saw yet again another encounter with the Pharisees and then more healing and preaching by Jesus. And it can seem like it's becoming a broken record. Jesus does some preaching. Someone comes and needs help. And Jesus addresses that issue and resolves that issue. And there's always someone who's arguing or yelling, saying, how dare you do that? Isn't it amazing that the Christian life today is very similar to the life that Jesus had? We preach and we proclaim. And people come. And our desire is, is to reach those and to help heal those and to minister to those who are in need. And yet we always have people, and as much as our heart's desire is to do good, there are always those in our world who point back to us and say, we are nothing but trouble. The text tells us in verse 31 that Jesus leaves after this encounter with the Pharisees and discussing with the disciples the latest debate with the religious leaders. And in verse 31 it says he makes his way back, he journeys back to the Sea of Galilee. But I want you to notice his journey isn't from point A to point B. It's kind of a zigzag. He goes through the town of Sidon. Tyre uh, was south of Sidon, and Jesus was heading south. So why in the world would he head north to Tyre another 20 miles by foot? That would be like us saying that we're heading from Chicago to Memphis by the way of Detroit. Now, who in the world besides Mario would ever want to go to Detroit. But that's what Jesus does. He heads into an even greater Gentile area of Sidon, a place where he wouldn't be known, and then what he does is he heads back south after going north, but he goes so the roundabout way, on the eastern side in Samaria of the Sea of Galilee, to head down to the Decapolis, the area of the ten cities. Put simply, what Jesus is doing is taking the long way back south. He's taking, if you will, the scenic route. Evidently, Jesus wanted to loop around northern Palestine and spend some time on the other side of the sea. And this journey, as a result of that, would take most likely several weeks, maybe even a couple months by foot. And we know that the next thing that we will see is the healing of a man and that seems to take place, most scholars believe, in the Decapolis, on the southeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so there is some time between Jesus and his departure from Sidon all the way down to the Decapolis. And we have to ask the question, what is going on? Now, I don't like to speculate too much with regards to silence in Scripture, but in light of what I've read by most commentaries, it seems that Jesus took this long way around to get some alone time with his disciples. His disciples had endured with Jesus long hours, long days, long weeks of ministry. Remember, it was difficult for them to find rest. It was difficult for them to even share a meal because the crowd, which was in the thousands, was always around. And it wasn't just some well-put-together group of people, but it was a people who were harassed, a people who were helpless, a people, Jesus said, who were without a shepherd. 
And so Jesus gets away from the crowd, it seems, to spend some time to teach and to train his disciples. And this is something that Jesus did, not only with his disciples, but Jesus himself did, retreating even from his disciples to be with his Father. He wanted to get alone with those closest to him. But I want us to imagine and, and to understand a little bit why Jesus is doing that. But to do that, we have to understand if we want to get alone with Christ, we need to first be away from people. It involves being away or going away from people. Now, I am as much as anybody is a people person. And I love being around a crowd. But there's something about silence. There's something about being alone. I want to make it abundantly clear this morning that we cannot follow Jesus simply by being a part of the crowd. Christianity, hear me, is not a corporate faith. It's an individual one. And some of us today enjoy being a part of the corporate faith that we've never allowed us as individuals to be changed by the Christ that we may worship, that we may serve with others in our midst. Just recently, I was asked to visit with a pastor from out west, and I had been asked by another pastor friend who uh, was aware of this pastor's situation, and this pastor had gotten himself into quite a bit of trouble. For, for five or six years, he had grown one of the largest churches in the region, where over a thousand people were attending one location, 800 at another location in a pretty rural area. And this guy was charismatic. This guy had all of the right uh, credentials and all the right leadership qualities that, that one would look for. And in be, the beginning of our conversation, I said, what's going on? And he says, I'm being asked to resign. I says, well, why is that? He says, I was caught in plagiarism of sermons. I said, wow, that's a temptation. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, how bad was it? He says, for the last five years, I haven't preached a sermon of my own. I said, man. I said, well, tell me, how did you get here? What happened? How did, you, how did this all take place? And he began to say, he said, Tim, it happened so quickly. The church grew, and everybody said, man, you're doing a great job. And he said, I loved the Sunday experience. I loved it when people were listening. I loved to see the excitement on people's faces. And I said, well, what would happen during the week? He said, I would just hope to get to another Sunday. And I said, how was your walk with God? He says, Tim, I don't know, remember the last time I had a special alone time with Christ. He says, what should I do? I said, get out of ministry. If you are living for the crowd, then you have no right to be leading the crowd. If you find yourself more excited about the group of friends and a little bit of Jesus instead of all of Jesus and a little bit of your friends, then there's a problem with our Christianity. Jesus got away from the crowd and he allowed his disciples to get to know him. And we'll see in a couple moments that he allows a man with a great handicap to have a private moment with Jesus. You see, the reason why this is so important is because we like relationships, and I'm glad for it. 
But let us never forget that within the crowd, it is so easy to become a spectator instead of a participant. It is easy to watch other people do their walk with Jesus, and you never do the same. For some here, even in this place, I am grieved at the fact that in a crowd this big, we would have many that would say, you know what, I just like to watch. I just like to come and be blessed. No doubt there were individuals within that crowd that came just to watch. No intent on doing anything more with what Jesus said in his sermons, doing nothing more than coming and hearing a wonderful sermon, seeing a wonderful show, and then heading back out to their homes and to their workplaces, never being changed, just with a day planner that says, I'll be back and I'll see it again. You know what the problem is with spectators? They become your worst judges and critics. When you come to church with the consumer mindset that it's all about what the group will do for me, when we as a group fail the individual, they become critical, they become harsh, and they begin to look and they begin to throw stones at the areas that they see of weakness in our lives. Can I tell you something? It is easy to judge a human being when you yourself are not walking in their shoes. The second thing that the crowd causes us to be able to do that's not good is to be anonymous. In a crowd this big, we can walk in and we can walk out. And we can say hello to a couple people, but we are anonymous spiritually. People don't know where we're at. People don't know what we're struggling with. People aren't even sure whether we're a believer or not. And so here is in a group of people that Jesus has been talking about, and Mark over and over again contrasts between the crowd and real disciples. Jesus says in a crowd you can have people. Some will be diehards. Others will be there for the show. I have a confession to make to you. I have watched one episode of The Baby Story in my life. And the one that I watched, Amanda said it was the worst one, and I shouldn't have watched it when we were waiting on Noah, and it was a public birth. And what had happened is, is the woman wanted everybody to be there. I'm not sure about that, but she wanted everyone to be there. And in the room, is a large, great room in a home, uh, there were probably 25 or 30 people. And so it was so odd that TLC started interviewing some of the people in the process and I never will forget Cousin Larry. Because Cousin Larry kind of walks in front of the camera, and they said, are you excited? You here? He says, I'm here for the food. <laughs> here there's this birth that is going to take place, and you see Cousin Larry in front of the buffet line. Why you would have a buffet line during a birthing process, I'm not sure. But then again, why would you have your pregnancy and birth on TLC that's another issue. This man had missed the obvious, had missed the central point of his attendance in that midst for something far less. As a crowd, let us be careful that we never allow ourselves to become anonymous. Jesus spent time with the crowd, but what we see now is a hiatus from the time with the crowd to another time with the crowd. And in that middle, 
there is some alone time with Jesus. Notice the second thing that this involves. It involves having some private time with him. Some private time with him. Now please understand me. Being with others is good. It is needed for a healthy life. It is needed for real and true fellowship as a church. But notice the text says in verse 32 that a man is brought to Jesus. And like so many before, this man has struggles. It says that he's deaf and he has a speech impediment. Most likely what it means is he was not always deaf, but had uh, deafness become an ongoing plague in his life and his speech began to deteriorate as a result. Literally what this man would do in trying to speak with people is stammer. Talk about a double whammy in this man's life. What this meant was this man had little to no ability to communicate with anyone. Totally isolated, probably in many ways left to himself. He had some friends because those are the ones that bring him to Jesus. And once again we're brought face to face with the love of Jesus Christ reaching out to the broken, reaching out to the destitute. But notice, unlike all the other times when Jesus had a crowd around him, the text says that he took him aside privately away from the crowd. Why does he do this? Again, there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus did this, but let me share a simple one with you that needs no stretching of the text. This man would have been lost in the crowd. Think about if you couldn't speak and all you could do is stammer in a crowd this big and we release everybody to fellowship with one another and here I am, I can't hear and I have a speech impediment and I'm just trying to interact with you and all I can go is ah, 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 ah and that's all that can come out of my mouth. I'm going to get lost in the crowd. In fact, probably at that point some people will be like, hey, hey, quiet down, what's your problem? And I'm not going to be able to understand that or hear that and I'll continue on. It is here that Jesus recognizes something that we too must recognize in our own spiritual lives with him. And that is as if there's going to be real communication between this man and Jesus, he had to separate this man from the crowd. And that's exactly what he does. He tells him, hey, bring him over here. I want to speak with him one-on-one. -on -one. And what happens is, is Jesus has a conversation with this man. The truth is simple in this text. It is that as we struggle in our communication with God, we struggle to hear him, we struggle to speak with him, to have the right things to say, and the last thing we need because we are broken in our communication is a group of people around us distracting us and keeping us from the real job at hand, and that is to communicate with our God. And so what needs to happen? We need to get alone with Jesus. Let me ask just a very pointed question this morning. When was the last time you had some alone time with God? I don't want the excuses. I don't want, well, I'm a mom or I'm a dad or work has been busy. You call yourself a Christian. You say that you put your hope and faith in this person, Jesus Christ, who will save you from your sins and give you the hope of eternity. And the question stands, when was the last time you got alone with him? And in the quietness of a room, you picked up his word. 
whether through the help of a devotional or a Bible study, and said, speak to me, O God. Speak to me. I'm listening. You see, when Jesus does this, it allows the man to hear from his God and allows the man in some ways to communicate with his God. Amongst the crowd, that would have never been able to happen. And notice, when we get into this private time with God, it allows Jesus to speak to our problems. You see, when we get together, and when I or someone else preaches to you, it is easy to say, well, that's not for me. That's for the guy sitting down the pew. Or that's for my wife. Or that's for my teenager. I hope Junior's listening to this sermon today because I never see that kid open up his Bible and do a devotional. And we're quick to judge the person somewhere else. But when we get alone with God, when there's nobody sitting next to us, and God teaches us something, we know it's from Him. Notice that when Jesus engages with this guy, he addresses him in a miming type way. It's the only way this man is going to be able to know what Jesus is communicating to him. And I want us to recognize that when we get alone, Jesus is able to communicate to us right where we're at. Not where our spouse is at, not where our pastor is at, not where our kids are at, but right where we're at. He's able to address the need. Jesus starts touching his tongue and touching the man's tongue. He starts putting his fingers in the man's ears. He does all of this odd and weird stuff. And you say, why would he do it? Because he's communicating to an individual. And what may seem weird to you as a bystander wasn't weird to that man at all. The things that the Lord will say to me, if others saw it, may say, why is, why is Tim and the Lord dealing with that? Because the Lord knows my heart. You don't. So the Lord addresses this man right where he's at. And he addresses the problem. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you. We talked at the annual meeting about making everyone complete in Christ. Admonishing and teaching us so that we all may get there. The only way we will as a church become complete in Christ as individuals is if we make it a priority to get into the Word of God and to pray and to do it by ourselves. Please hear me. Small groups, utterly important. Public worship, vital to the church. But this church will never grow. It will never grow to its full potential until we as individuals who make the body reach ours in our alone time with Christ. Notice what takes place. Amidst this personal encounter, first of all, there's a personal connection. Some of you right now, I know, seem far away from God. You say, God isn't speaking to me. Then open his word. And open your ears. My friend Amato would say, if you're not reading God's word, you're not hearing from God, I can't amen that enough. I wish I would have come up with that. Because we want to hear from God. Oh, God won't speak to me. And, and some will say, well, well where, does, where does Tim get all of this insight? From the same God that you can go to. I remember asking my dad, well, how do you understand that stuff? How do you get there? And he said, Tim, you've got to spend time in the Word. 
Some of us are able, men especially, are able to read a defense on a football field far quicker than we'll ever read God's Word. We need to be careful that we elevate back to its rightful spot this personal encounter and connection that we can have with Jesus. Notice what takes place when we have that personal encounter and connection with Jesus. It involves a powerful transformation. There's a transformation that takes place. Notice what the text says. It says uh, within the text that, uh, let me find it here, in verse 35, it says, after Jesus has announced to him that his ears and, eye, or ears and mouth are going to be opened, it says in verse 35, his ears were opened and his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Wow. What a change. This guy who had come, he had nothing coherent to say. All of these emotions deep inside of him, just wanting to come out. And Jesus with a touch. Jesus with a short moment. Please hear me. I'm not telling you that you need to have this long, drawn out time. It'd be great if you could. I read the Puritans, and it was amazing. An hour in the morning, an hour at noon, and an hour at night. I'm like, well, how in the world did they get anything done? And then I'm reminded they got up at 3.30 in the morning. They didn't have TV. But what I'm asking for you to do is to have some short times with him. What revolutionized my walk with God was one Christmas I was given a devotional by Warren Wearsby. They were one-page devotionals. And I committed that next day that when I got up, I was going to read that devotional, read the verse that it came from, or the passage that it came from, and dedicate myself to saying, Lord, teach me today what you want me to know from this verse. And it was instantaneous. That which I started to meditate on in the morning changed my morning and afternoon and evening. I am not a devotional snob. If the day, our daily bread works, use it. If you want something a little meatier, a little deeper, then find it. I don't care what it is. Get into his word and connect with your God. There's a transformation that takes place. It's amazing. This guy is totally different. I can assure you, as the sun is bright, that you will be transformed. If you dedicate yourself to it, you'll be a different person. And notice what happens when this man's life has changed. There's a public affirmation. And the affirmation is in verse 37. I love it. It says, they were astonished beyond measure. This guy's different. This guy can do things he never was able to do before. And it says that he has done, speaking of Jesus, all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. When we encounter Jesus, when we leave that prayer closet, when we leave that empty room and we come out, there will be a change. And that change will be seen by your fellow employees, by your spouse, by your kids, by your people in your neighborhood. And they're going to look and say, man, this guy was having all kinds of issues before and now he's a different person. He's been changed. What did it? And hopefully you'll be able to say, just a closer walk with Jesus. 
He changed my mouth. He changed what I listened to. He changed the way I interacted with people. He expanded my love because I encountered him one-on-one. He says, Jesus does all things well. The literal translation of that, that they were astonished, means they were totally overwhelmed. My desire is is that my encounters with Jesus would overwhelm people, not, wow, look how smart Tim is, look how, how bold Tim is, but they'd say, what was going on in that hour that I saw Tim go away and pray? What changed him? That I'd be able to say, I was with Jesus, even if it was for just a moment. Notice the second thing that we need to do this morning. Once we get alone with Christ, Jesus then moves us, and Mark does, to the feeding of the 4,000. And it's there that we see that we need to grow in our compassion for others. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see Jesus in the area of the Decapolis. And we're told a great crowd had come to listen. Now, the last time Jesus was in this area, he had freed an individual from demon possession. Not only a demon, but a legion of demons, and had cast those demons into a herd of swine that then propelled themselves off a cliff to their destruction. And it says that that individual, that man, wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't want you to follow me uh, where I'm going. I want you to go and proclaim what you've been a part of to the area of the Decapolis. And so what had transpired was Jesus had been asked, he had been told to leave the region. And in his coming back, he is well received. Why? The testimony of one individual. And now 4,000 have come. And as a result of the proclamation that we see in Mark 5.20 by this man, now people have come to hear from Jesus. It is in this text that we see in verse 2 of chapter 8 that Jesus says he has compassion. What we need to understand, first of all, is that this compassion was a compassion that was deep. The Greek word that we have in our English translations of compassion is the idea that his whole inside was not only filled with compassion, but that it came from the depth of who he was. A gut-wrenching and heart-aching compassion for the people who were around him. Jesus' heart broke when he saw the needs and the struggles of people. And so... How do we get that? The answer is, and I'm going to sound schizophrenic here, is to spend time with others. Wait a minute. You said get away. Yeah. But what you didn't hear me say is head off to Montana, get a parcel of land, and never look at anybody again. What you're hearing is the great paradox of the Christian faith. Alone time will help together time. Might I add that the reason why we gather together is that together time helps alone time. It's a cycle. We come, and and our job here as a public worship service and as a people is to excite one another, to spur one another on. So when we're by ourselves, we're not by ourselves, but we're together as a body because we've gotten together and we've prayed and we've sought the face of God and we've been encouraged to pursue Him, not when we're just together but when we're apart. So the way that we gain compassion is first of all by spending time with others. Jesus, it says, had spent three days with these people. 
No doubt he had seen their pains and their struggles, their troubles. He had enjoyed spending time with them. He had gotten to know them. And I think it's a good reminder that our compassion will only go as far as our interaction with people. Let me compare it for a moment. All of us have seen Sally Struthers get on and talk about the orphans in Africa. And I would say that all of us are filled with compassion, right? I would hope that none of us would be like, ah, dumb kids out in Africa, who cares? If you do, you need to get your heart checked out. Something's wrong. But let me compare that to the compassion of our Ugandan team that got back this summer, who were there, who saw the effects of how AIDS devours a country, how little beautiful children have no mom or dad because they've been taken away. A lost generation of people and these children, just as Jesus said, are harassed and helpless and sheep without a shepherd. Who has the greater compassion? Me in front of my TV or our team that has been there? Who has touched them? Who has wiped away their tears and cleaned them up and fed them a meal? Who has the greater compassion? I will assure you it's them. The places of greatest compassion in my life has been when I have found myself in those situations. Why do we do short-term missions? One of the reasons is so that we can have a compassion for the world around us. Because we can grow heartless. We can grow cold when we don't spend time with people. It's easy, again, for us to judge. Well, what's their problem over there? We've got running water. Why can't they figure it out? And little do we know we live in one of the most fertile places in the world and they live in a desert. And we're judging them. These people just like us, we, don't have, we have the luxury of a strong government. A government set on some great ideals. They don't have that. And yet from the TV we can judge that and say it's their own problem. When we go there, when we touch them, our compassion has grown. It increases we have to spend time with them. Number two, we need to seek to help those going through hard times. Jesus' heart is breaking. And his heart is breaking because these people don't have food. You say, how small of an issue is that? Well, they're in the wilderness. And there's no food. Thousands of people. And notice what the natural tendency is of human beings. Jesus goes to the disciples and says, hey, I'm filled with compassion for them. we got to get them some food. And you know what the disciples' response is? Get them out of here. Send them home. It's not our problem. It's not our issue. Really, at the end of the day, what can we do? We don't have all that much. How many of us can answer or have answered in that same way? What can I do for an orphan in Africa? What can I do for those that are living in the inner cities? What can I do? So just send them away. Let the government deal with them. Let someone else deal with them. They're not our problem. That's what the disciples are doing, and it's indicative of our lives today. And Jesus, got to believe Jesus, was pretty frustrated with his guys. And he looks to his disciples in verses 4 and 5, and he says to the disciples what he's saying to us today, and that is share your things to help others. Share your things to help others. He asks a simple question, what do you have? What do you have? I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say is, what don't you have? 
Can I make a, a statement that I think is true and trustworthy? Jesus will never ask you to give something you don't have. So what Jesus isn't looking for is for you to give a million dollars to Africa. Unless, of course, you have a million dollars. I don't, and nor do I know that my Lord is calling me to that. But what my Lord may be calling me to is to give a lot more than I would ever think. And what we're quick to say is, well, all we have is seven fish. All I've got is a couple thousand dollars in my checking account. All I've got is, is, uh, is a warm home. And what Jesus says is, out of the heart of compassion that I have, share it. Share it. Give it to somebody. Let God use it. We all have something. Let us remember something of great importance. What we have is not our own. There is not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. So do you want to be known as a manager of God's stewards or a thief of God's stewards? Or a thief of God, I'm sorry, a manager of God's goods or a thief of God's goods? When we hold things for ourselves, when God says, I want you to release something to that individual, we hold it, we are a thief, we are a robber from what God wants us to do with that. He wants us to be a steward. Now notice what takes place. Something that I think is very important, Jesus takes the small and he gives thanks. He takes the seven loaves and, and some fishes and he gives thanks. Guys, let us never forget that every good and perfect gift comes from above and we need to give thanks. We need to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. I don't deserve it. Thank you, Lord, for giving me all that I have so that I now can give it to others. And that's the second thing. Once we give thanks, write that down, give thanks for the things we have. We trust God to transform it. The disciples give them the seven loaves, and Jesus takes it, and he multiplies it. You know what I'm amazed with when we do missions trips? I'm amazed at our meager attempts. We're there two, maybe three weeks. The Liberian team, and I don't mean, I don't, 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 don't want to diminish this stuff, but they dug some holes. And they oversaw the foundation of a building project. The Ugandan team did some teaching. I mean, a lot of people can do teaching. And we do all of these things, and yet, in our meager attempts, these things aren't anything special. I mean, we're not raising people from the dead or anything. And notice the thanks that comes back from people. You've changed us. You've made us more like Christ. The last time Pastor Ben was here from Uganda, in tears, he said, I can't tell you, Pastor Tim, how thankful we are for your people. We just did some teaching, Ben. And he says, but it was you who came from far off to a world that America is so great and so wonderful. And you came and you said, you know what's more wonderful than the American way of life? Jesus. And when we give humbly of our things, he transforms it. He makes it greater. Notice the text says everyone was satisfied. The reason why we give, the reason why the first church was so hospitable and so generous is so that everyone would have everything they need. 
So we look to our own. It says first to look to the family of God. Are there any needs around us? I think we are addressing those needs. And that's why all the more the elders are convinced that we need to now from our middle class suburban lives start giving to the world at large. And that's why 25% of our giving in this church goes other places. We're meeting the needs here. Now let's address the needs that are far off so that we can be filled with the compassion that God has for us and the world around us. One final thing this morning, and I gotta get done, and I was even given a couple extra minutes, so I apologize. And that is the final thing that brings forth the simplicity in our Christian life is to guard against the challenges to our faith. Wasn't planning on this being long, and so I will keep it short. In verses 11 through 21, two more episodes come. Episode with the Pharisees, they're like, give us a sign. We want a sign. And there's a whole lot of reasons why they want a sign. If Jesus fails to give the sign, they can call him a false teacher. If he continues to do the signs on a notice of any individual, he could be called a showman. He's being he's trying to, they're trying to trick him so that they can then denounce him. They want a sign. And then Jesus encounters the disciples. And the disciples get into a boat with Jesus and they, they forget, probably because they're rushing away from the crowd and they forget all they got is a loaf of bread. And they're worried about that loaf. They're like my kids when they see the golden arches on the highway. Dad, did you forget? We're hungry. And in those two episodes, I see something that I want us to meditate on because they will keep us from getting alone with Christ. They will keep us from being compassionate. And that is be careful of a faith that is dead. Be careful of a faith that is dead. That's seen in the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked good on the outside, but were rotten on the end. They went through all their forms and religious duties, and it never worked on the inside. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there's nothing worse in this world than to be a part of a church and to be in a community of people that preach and proclaim and live for Christ, only for you to go through all of the motions each and every Sunday, sitting in the pew, being in your small group, and never allowing it to change your life and to look before God. I don't think there will be ever a greater time of disappointment in our lives than to say, I was there every Sunday, I was there every Wednesday, and I heard that gospel, and I heard that message, and it never changed me. Beware of the dead faith. Because it can look, you can look great on the outside as the Pharisees did and be rotten on the inside. Notice, beware of a faith that is double-minded. Jesus talks about this issue of bread, takes every opportunity he gets, and he speaks about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And with Herod, we see a double-minded faith. We have to go back a couple chapters, but we remember that Herod loved listening to John the Baptist. He loved the truth that John shared. But you say, wait a minute, Tim, didn't Herod give the okay to have John beheaded? Yeah. The Bible says we can't serve two masters. And Herod learned that very quickly. Because though he loved the truth that Herod was preaching, he loved his sin more. And Herod had to make a decision. And Jesus says, you'll either hate the one and love the other. You can't love both. And some of us right now think we're straddling on the fence. And you know, hey, I really like what's going on on Sundays. I really like what's happening in my small group. But gosh, I, 
I love watching that stuff on TV. I love being a part of that stuff when nobody's around. I like being a part of the in crowd in my neighborhood at work. Let me tell you something. A double-minded faith will always have you choosing sin over Jesus. Always. And Jesus says, beware of it. Because it'll keep you from getting that relationship with Christ. The next one is a dull faith. This is seen in the disciples. They had seen all the miracles, all the healings, They had heard all the teaching. They had just told Jesus, what do you want us to do about the 4,000 after remembering, remembering that Jesus had fed the 5,000? Jesus must have been bald because by the time he's at this place, he must have pulled all his hair out of his head. There's a whole bunch of group of people here. They're hungry. You would have thought the disciples would have said, hey... Just one loaf and a fish, Jesus will take care of it. We'll be eating for days. And they're like, what do you want us to do? Dull faith. They get into the boat. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. 4,000. And they got one loaf. And what does it say they're worried about? We don't have enough food. What are we going to do? Dull faith. Some of us have been watching all that God does and we see God moving in our lives and we get outside and we're like, wow, what a great time of worship, what a great time of of studying God's word and then we go to our work and someone says something to us and, and Sunday we're like, we're unstoppable. If God is for us, who can be against us? And someone says, who do you think your God is? That's all a bunch of malarkey and you're like, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go? What am I gonna say? We have a dull faith. What Jesus says to his disciples is beware of these three things. They're subtle. They find their way into the lives of people. And what Jesus is requiring of us, I write down, it's a dynamic faith. And let me close with this. The dynamic faith that Jesus wants us to have is a faith that gets alone with Christ, that allows Jesus to speak to us so that we can hear from him that we can allow it to penetrate our hearts. It's a dynamic faith that doesn't just live on the inside of an empty room in a secluded area, but goes from that place of seclusion to that public place and announces to the world, I have compassion on you. As God so loved the world, I love the world. As God so loved you who are struggling, I love you who are struggling. As God so loved the one who is unlovable in my midst, I love you you. But to be able to do that, we need to allow God to speak to us. And that means, my brothers and sisters, to be reminded of the man who could not hear and who could not speak and say to the Lord once and for all, as we sing in the praise song, open my eyes, I want to see Jesus. Open my ears, I want to hear. Open my mouth, I want to share. And remind me of all that you've done so that with confidence I can move in the future. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I am amazed at the truth that is contained in your word. Each and every time that I open it, I'm confronted with my sin. I am reminded of your righteousness and your faithfulness. Yet, Lord, I wonder why it is so often that I put this book away 
and turn on a TV or a computer. And then, Lord, I wonder, why am I not doing what I'm called to do? Where's my compassion? Where's my call to action? Lord, forgive me for my dull faith that chooses to listen or to hear but to not listen, that chooses to see while still being blind. Lord, change me that I would be a person that would desire your word, that would pursue your word and pursue you so that I could live out that dynamic faith that you're calling me to. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as well that we would be dynamic in our compassion and in our personal times with you so that we can be a people who are changed and who can be the change agent for others in this world. Lord, we didn't talk about this today, but we need your spirit to do it. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, fill us this week so that we can do this with the power that is in your spirit. We thank you that you say we can do this. We're thankful that you can open the ears and open the mouth of even the dumb and the deaf. And because of that, Lord, we know you can use us. So our prayer this day is that you will use us this week to share your love and compassion to share your gospel to all those who will listen. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.